Uh, right, I think um, we should um, uh, begin to get going. Um, and um, maybe the occasional latecomer, but um, given this is an evening event, um, we probably shouldn't hang around. Um, first of all, can I welcome you all here, particularly those of you who are visitors to LSE. Um, this is one of a number of events um, going under the heading of Life After Blair. Um, this shows some confidence on the part of the LSE um, that um, this is a fairly imminent event, that there will be Life After Blair, but I guess that's, uh, this will happen within the next few months. Uh, the next event in this series will be um, on Thursday the 3rd of May. You will have seen that advertised um, on the screen a few moments ago. Um, when Sir Stephen Wall, who was formerly Tony Blair's EU policy advisor, will be talking about will Blair's European dream be Bl Brown's British nightmare. That will be at 6.30, also 6.30, 8 o'clock. But that event will be in the Hong Kong, the LSE's Hong Kong Theatre, uh, which you get to um, directly through the Aldwych rather than having to wheel your way through the narrow passage out there. Um, but tonight I'm delighted to um, welcome Adair Turner um, on one of his many visits to LSE, um, but to welcome him to talk to us tonight, I think really rather more cheerfully than anything to do with nightmares, um, about the ageing society, challenges, opportunities and unnecessary scares. Um, Adair is going to be talking for about up to 40 minutes. Uh, that will then leave us time about half an hour for discussion afterwards and we'll wrap up proceedings at around um, 7.45 or shortly after that. Um, I'm sure many of you will know Adair as chair of the Pensions Commission between 2003 and 2006. Um, with whom it was a huge pleasure and privilege to be uh, a member in that exercise. Um, others of you will know him as a former chair of the Low Pay Commission um, before that. You may know of his work um, for the government on the ageing pressures on the National Health Service. You may also recall his role as Director General of the Confederation of British Industry, although there are clearly some people in government whose memory of that period <laughs> is less clear than Adair's memory of that period. Um, most recently, he's become a non-executive director of Char Standard Chartered Bank and various others, and he has also, very interestingly recently, uh, an, an even longer-term subject than pensions has taken on the economics of climate change. But in short, there are really very few people in, in the world better qualified to talk about tonight's subject, uh, not just with um, your usual enlightenment uh, that you bring to the rest of us today, uh, but also, I hope, to cheer us up. Thank you very much. Good. Well, John, thank you uh, very much. Uh, the subject of the ageing society was, uh, uh, as it were, given to me uh, within this uh, series on... Uh, Life after Blair, uh, which I suppose is uh, confident in two respects. First of all, that we are going to have a change of Prime Minister. Secondly, that it's not com the complete end of human life as we know it. Um, within that sequence, I was uh, asked to talk about the ageing society, but then I deliberately uh, put on it uh, this uh, a, a subtitle, Challenges, Opportunities and Unnecessary Scares, because I think it's very important to see 
the ageing society in terms of opportunities as well as challenges. And it's also uh, important to get rid of uh, unnecessary uh, scares. Uh, because I find that because I have been chairman of the Pension Commission, people expect me to go along with a rather dominant thesis at the moment, which is that the rich developed world faces some crisis of ageing, and that in particular Europe faces some crisis of ageing, and that almost it would be better if we weren't ageing uh, in the sense of uh, living longer, and certainly that it would be better uh, if we didn't have such a low uh, birth rate, which is the other thing that drives uh, ageing in the sense of an increasing proportion of people who are old. But I actually uh, don't uh, agree with that. Um, I believe there are many positives of an ageing society, both in respect of uh, higher life expectancy and in respect of a lower birth rate. I think there are challenges, and I'll talk about the challenges, but I think certainly at the fertility rates that the UK has, about 1.7, 1.8, those are manageable challenges. I'd be in a bit of a different camp if I was in Korea or Japan, which do face uh, very severe problems of uh, ageing. And finally, I don't actually think that uh, in the UK, ageing uh, is our biggest demographic challenge, but I'll leave till my final slide uh, what I think is our biggest demographic challenge uh, in the UK. So let's begin by being clear what we mean by the ageing society. And it's very important uh, to understand that there are two quite different social effects going on which have different impacts on the mathematics of ageing. Uh, the first uh, is that people are living longer. Uh, a man in 1950, uh, if he reached the age of 65, could on average expect to live for about 12 years. So male life expectancy at 75 on average was about 12 years. Now that figure is about uh, 19 years. Of course, we don't definitively know because we don't know what's going to happen uh, to the mortality of 65-year-olds, but probably we'll get that roughly right. It'll be 19, uh, give or take, half a year or, or so. And this blue line is what is expected to occur under the Government Actuaries Department's uh, principal uh, projection, going up to about 24 years uh, by uh, 2050. So at that time, the average 65-year-old, reaching 65-year-old in 2050, could then expect to live to 89. But that, of course, is the average. There will be some who die at 80, but there will be an increasing number who will live uh, beyond 100. So life expectancy is going up. And that is a factor which is pretty much uh, standard across the rich developed world and it's a pretty uh, uh, common uh, pattern. There are some interesting variations. Uh, French people live longer uh, than us. Uh, this is because uh, olive oil and red wine and sunshine are better for you than butter, beer and northern rain. But that apart, and it makes a year or so's difference, uh, these are cross-European and cross-rich developed society uh, effects. So it is going up. The other point to mention, though, uh, on life expectancy is that how fast it is going up is uncertain, and it may go up considerably faster uh, than that figure suggests. It's certainly been the case for the last 25 years what has actually occurred has shot ahead of what Government Actuaries Department suggested. 
This is the forecast back in 1983. They said it's gone up a bit. It will go up a bit further, and then it will tail off. Uh, this is the forecast in 1992. It's gone up further than we expected. It will still go up a bit further, and it will then tail off. Uh, this is the forecast in 2003, and it was still going to tail off. And it was only in the 2004-based forecast uh, that Government Actuaries Department said, well, actually, we don't think it's ever going to tail off. Uh, we think this increase in life expectancy is going to go on uh, forever. <coughs> and I think it may well go on forever, or at least uh, as far as the eye can see to 2050 and maybe throughout the century. And we did some work in the Pension Commission which tried to think about how uncertain we should think about uh, the forecast of life expectancy. We said that around the 2003 forecast and the 2004 forecast, it could be as pessimistic as only a small increase in life expectancy, the lower bound there, only edging up to 20 years uh, by 2050. But by 2050, life expectancy for a man aged 65, and of course it's older for a woman, could be, it's within the bounds of possibility, as high as 30 years. And by uh, the end of the century, it could quite easily uh, be 35 years. So that is pretty clear. Uh, it could go on forever. But the thing that I'm going to say in a minute is that I don't think this bit of uh, the ageing society is actually a problem at all unless we make it a problem. And I'll come back to that. The other factor which is at work in an ageing society in the sense of a society which has a greater percentage of people who are above any uh, given age is, of course, uh, lower fertility. We're not living longer. Uh, it's not just that we're living longer. Uh, we are having uh, fewer children. If you look at the <coughs> evolution throughout the uh, 20th century of the uh, what's called the general fertility rate, there's a whole series of different measures. This is one particular uh, one of them. Uh, back in the late 19th century, average uh, general fertility rate uh, was about 4.5 uh, children per woman. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, the growth of the population, it uh, wasn't as dramatic as that suggests because quite a lot died before 18. And therefore, you had in each generation, you had uh, people who never got themselves to, as it were, a child producing age. But even if you adjust it for live births reaching 18, uh, it was much higher than it is today. And broadly speaking, what happened in the 20th century is it came down with a long sweep. It ignored this and this. These are temporary phenomenons due to uh, men being away fighting wars and coming back and having a large number of children at the moment they come back. So ignore that. The general thing is a long sweep down, a bit of an increase, and then a sweep down again. That's what happened uh, in the 20th century uh, in uh, the UK. And we now have birth rates in the UK which are about 1.7, uh, 1.8 children per uh, women. Um, that is in rich developed country levels, sort of middle of the pack. That's in line with Scandinavia, a uh, little bit behind Ireland and France, but well ahead of Austria, Germany, Italy, Spain, which are down at about the 1.2, 1.3 levels, and way ahead of Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Japan, or Korea, which are right down at about uh, 1.1, or in the case of Singapore, I think it's even 0.9. So we are middle of the pack. But what is interesting is, in pretty much all rich developed societies, in fact, 
removed pretty much in all rich developed societies, uh, fertility rates have fallen to or below the replacement level, which is about 2.05 to allow for, uh, it has to be slightly above 2 to allow for women who never reach uh, uh, childbearing age. Now, obviously, a, a key point about the fertility rate is, is it going to stay at this level, or could it ever do uh, what uh, it did in the post-war era and go back to a higher level, uh, having uh, gone to a lower level? In relation to that argument, it's <coughs> very important to realize that part of what happened post-war, not all, but part of what happened post-war, was simply a change in the timing at which people uh, had children rather than the change in the number of children uh, that they had. You can get an increase, a temporary increase in the fertility rate if a particular cohort of women decide to have uh, babies earlier uh, than the previous uh, generation without that being cha a change in what's called completed family size, which is how many children do they have when they uh, get to the end of childbearing age. And if you actually plot completed family size, and one thing which is not clear from this chart is that when we plot completed family size for 1960, to compare it with the general fertility rate, what we do is we, we, we slip the axis a bit. So we plot in 1960 the cohort born in 1933, uh, you slip the, uh, uh, the scale by uh, the average age of childbirth. Uh, but when you do that, uh, you find that the increase in completed family size was not as dramatic as the increase in fertility. Broadly speaking, the 20th century picture is, at the beginning of the century, average completed family size is about three to four, swings down below two in the interwar period, goes up to about 2.4 for the cohorts born in early 1930s, and then goes back down again uh, to the sort of levels which we are, are seeing or expect to see uh, um, among present cohorts of young women of about 1.8 or so. And I believe that the best guess is that unless something really dramatic happens, we will continue to have uh, fertility rates at or below two. I think there's something quite fundamental uh, which basically says that when you have societies in which contraceptives are available and women are educated, um, the choice is for lower levels of uh, fertility, and that is a pretty fundamental factor which is very unlikely uh, to reverse. Now, there's a whole series of social debates about the difference between a fertility rate of 2 and a fertility rate of 1.2. Why is it 2 in France? Why is it 1.2 in Italy? And I suspect that there are social policy uh, levers where if you wanted to, you can pull them and make it more likely that you get two uh, rather than 1.2. But I think it's very unlikely that we're going to re uh, return to uh, the threes of pre-contraceptives, pre-education of women a uh, birth rate. But that can be debated. Those are the factors at work. And you put those two factors together, and what you get is what I call from pyramids to columns. <coughs> Demographers like to set out the structure of a society's population in this form of, of, of representation where the uh, width of each of, of these slices says how many people are there in the 0 to 4 year old age group, the 5 to 9, etc. The classic uh, pre-demographic change uh, structure was a, a, a pyramid or a triangle, both because there were more people in the next generation 
than the generation before, and because people uh, died out slowly uh, across the whole of the different ages. We have increasingly moved in rich developed worlds to a structure which looks like a column with a little pyramid on top. Uh, the vast majority of people get to live to 60, 70 or so, and people then uh, die out beyond that, and each generation is the same size as the generation before, or in some countries actually uh, 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 smaller, in which case you get a, a column which tapers at the bottom. The key point I want to make is that there are these two different effects at work, and you keep on having to come back to that when you to talk intelligently about the aging society. The two different effects are, first of all, have you got more people in each generation than the generation before? Secondly, are we living longer so that there is an increasing percentage uh, of that uh, uh, structure, an increasing share of that structure, which is beyond uh, any given uh, retirement uh, age? Uh, one of which I will call the pure aging effect, increased average longevity. The other I will call the disappearance of the chain letter effect. Basically, when you have pyramids, when you have a, uh, a structure where there are more people in each generation uh, than there were in the previous generation, you can construct a pension system as a, basically a chain letter. The amount you get is crucially dependent on there being more people in the next step of uh, the, the chain letter. So what's one thing that's happening with demography is that chain letter effect uh, is coming to an end. My overall hypothesis is going to be that the increasing longevity effect, what I'll call pure aging, is not a problem at all. And if it was the only thing going on, we shouldn't be at all worried by an aging society. As for the disappearance of the chain letter effect, my argument is going to be that as long as your fertility rates are 1.8, 1.92, although that absence of the chain letter effect creates challenges, they are for rich developed uh, societies completely manageable challenges, and there are also some useful economic and social benefits of that end of the permanently expanding but obviously, as you go from pyramids to columns, the ratio of area B to A goes up, which is the elderly dependency ratio expressed at uh, any particular retirement age. And we can see how here how it has gone up uh, in the UK, which is uh, the blue line there. It's the ratio of people above 65 uh, to those aged, say, 20 uh, to 65, which you might think of as a classic uh, uh, working age. Just one point about the shape of it, which is an interesting point. If there had been no baby boom, if there had been no sudden surge of the birth rate in the years after the Second World War, this ratio would have just steadily stepped up and up and up. It would have been that dotted line. What the baby boom did is depress that long-term trend of the ratio below its long-term trend for a period. We sometimes say that the retirement of the baby boom is increasing that ratio. It's much more insightful to say that the existence of the baby boom depressed the ratio below its long-term trend. And indeed, one of the things that it did is it enabled us for years to avoid and ignore some of the long-term challenges of an aging society, which we would otherwise have responded to. 
One final point about the mathematics. If there were no aging effect and simply a shift to a lower rate of fertility, then the increase in the dependency ratio would be a one-off. You move to a higher level of dependency, but it doesn't go up and up and up forever. It just flattens off beyond a certain level. Because of the aging effect, pure aging, an increase in life expectancy, the dependency ratio expressed above any particular age, such as 65, will go on increasing relentlessly. <coughs> but of course, the issue there is whether we should attach any importance to 65 at all, which I'll come back to. So those are the mathematics. So what's the problem with this mathematics? Well, people think there are three categories of problems. There's probably some others as well, but the key, three key ones that people talk about is, first of all, pensions, the affordability of pension systems. Secondly, the affordability of healthcare. And thirdly, some people talk about a wider concern, that an older society is on average less productive or indeed less dynamic, less creative, uh, less innovative. Uh, David Willits, uh, uh, the shadow cabinet uh, minister who is a major expert in issues of demography, has actually talked about the danger of uh, a, a, an uncreative uh, Europe because it is uh, an older uh, Europe. But I'll come back to that point. Let's talk first of all about pensions. <coughs> Clearly, if you have that increase in the ratio of people over 65 to those aged 20 to 65, and if you leave the state pension age stuck at uh, uh, 65, uh, you have a problem in a pension system, which is the ratio of people receiving money from the system has gone up relative to the people uh, who are paying money into the system. And in a pay-as-you-go system, it's very easy uh, to understand that. More recipients, less payers, so that means that on average either you have to make the pension a bit meaner relative to average earnings, or you have to increase the tax stroke contribution rate uh, in order to deal uh, with that mathematical problem. Some people then suggest, oh, well, the answer to that is to uh, have funded pension systems, uh, pension systems which uh, don't rely on the next generation paying contributions or taxes. It's very important in this argument not to pursue uh, false answers. Uh, there are some advantages through, for funded systems, uh, and there's a set of reasons why a pension system should be a balanced mix of pay-as-you-go and funded, but it is wrong to think about going funded as being the answer to the pension challenge. And that's uh, because um, we're not actually squirrels. Um, we can't, as it were, accumulate a whole load of nuts to live on in old age uh, and then just slowly eat our way uh, through them. Given the things that we like to uh, consume in old age, we are vitally dependent on there being a next generation who are producing things uh, that uh, we want. And that is true whether we're talking about a funded system or as a pay-as-you-go system, because funded systems, as well as pay-as-you-go, are subject to demographic pressures. If you have increased longevity, pure aging, with no increase in the pension age, and if a whole load of <coughs> individual workers, knowing that they're going to live longer in retirement, say, well, I'm going to deal with that by increasing my rate of savings, then economics tells us that they will be accumulating more and more capital against a 
small, uh, a constrained amount of labor, the KL ratio, the capital to labor ratio, uh, will go up, and somewhere or other, something must give, and what will give is the rate of return, and so you'll accumulate a whole load of savings, but you'll make a lower return uh, on that savings. So you can't simply respond to the fact that you're going to live longer by simply trying to save more uh, without facing uh, some offsets. Even more obviously, this is the one that's more easy for most people to understand. If you have generation one selling its accumulated savings to generation two in order to fund its retirement, and in the past each of the generations was the same, and suddenly you get a fall in the birth rate and generation two is smaller than, gener smaller than generation one, but generation one is trying to sell its accumulated savings onto generation two, well, what's going to happen in that circumstance? The answer is the price at which they can sell those assets is going to fall. So both when you have longevity effects and fertility effects, they apply in relation to funded pensions as much as they do in relation to pay as you go. So there is a challenge. But it's a challenge which we should not make more difficult by failing to do the most obvious policy measure in response. It's not a completely sufficient policy measure, but it's an important policy measure, and it's absolutely obvious, which is that one thing you should do is increase the average pension age so as to try and keep roughly stable the percentage of life which is spent paying into and receiving from a pay-as-you-go uh, pension. And that is, broadly speaking, what the Pension Commission proposed. Uh, we proposed the state pension age, and it's now being legislated by government, should go from 65 today to 68 by 2050. If you then look at uh, what is the life expectancy which somebody at that state pension age would then have, we're not stealing people's retirement years, because as best we know, beyond 68 in 2050, you'll have 20.9 years, versus beyond 65 in 2005, you have 19.4 years. And if you work out what percentage of adult life, and in this case we've done it on life after 18-year-olds, is spent in retirement, the answer is it will be roughly constant at about 29.2%. To me, that recommendation is so obvious and so essential that the surprising thing is how long it took the UK and indeed other countries to come round to it. Almost all European countries are now in some way or other committing to that very simple principle. But almost all failed to make any adjustment till the last five years. The adjustments of this sort have all come into the policy uh, debate uh, within uh, the last uh, five years. And that's despite the rapid increase in life expectancy which had been occurring over the last 25 years. I think there are four factors that explain that delayed response. First was the fact that I mentioned earlier that the phenomenon of the baby boom gave societies, though we didn't realize it at the time, but they gave us a temporary uh, benefit to the dependency ratio. I mean, basically, the 1980s and 90s were very good times to be running governments because you had a lot of workers relative uh, to uh, retired people. We were 
flattering uh, the underlying situation because of that temporary effect. The second factor that means we have a delayed response is it actually took the actuarial profession rather a long time uh, to understand how rapidly life expectancy uh, was rising and even longer to start moving to the assumption that that uh, rise would be continuous uh, rather than one-off. The third was uh, sheer uh, inertia and political cowardice. Um, as of 10.59, on November the 30th, 2005, uh, when the Pension Commission uh, presented its uh, report, uh, not a single British uh, political party uh, had publicly said uh, that the state pension age would have to uh, go up. Though I have to say rather a lot of politicians had told us privately uh, that they accepted that. Uh, as of 11 o'clock, uh, we produced a report that said it would have to go up. Uh, by the evening news, all three political parties were committed to it going up. Sometimes that's just how politics works. But the fourth is uh, a more important thing, which gets to a very important issue uh, in this debate. The final reason why people have been slow to increase uh, retirement ages or pensionable ages uh, is the concern that uh, people will be not able to work longer, uh, that they will be too old and frail uh, to work uh, to later age. And this final concern suggests really one of the most important issues in the analysis of aging. Whether aging is in general healthy or in general unhealthy. Whether when we have more 70-year-olds in society, that means more people who are mentally and physically like the 70-year-olds of 50 years ago, or whether it means more people who, although they are 70 today, <coughs> are like, say, the 60-year-olds of 50 years ago. Now, this is actually a crucial issue, but it's also one on which the research base is frustratingly slim. <coughs> Ideally, it is an issue to which we would have answers based on detailed longitudinal studies of people of a given age over time, with specific measures of physical and cognitive ability based on health and activity tests, taking each generation of 70-year-olds and asking them to uh, step up and down on a stepping machine, uh, asking them to do uh, manual dexterity uh, uh, exercises, asking them to do uh, intelligence tests and response tests. And in fact, although that may sound uh, extreme, that is uh, what we will have uh, when a very fine study called the English Longitudinal Study of Aging, which is a major research project uh, driven by Sir Michael Marmot, uh, joint between uh, UCL and IFS, uh, when that matures. The only difficulty, of course, is when you first launch that type of project, and it was only launched uh, three years ago, uh, all you know is the answer for today's 60-year-olds and 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds and 90-year-olds. It takes 40 years or so uh, before you can actually start talking about what uh, the trend is. So we are short of some of the data we would have to have on this crucial issue. But even absent such definitive research, I think the clear weight of evidence pushes us towards the healthy aging hypothesis. If you look, for instance, at measures of the health status of the US population over 65, what they illustrate is that an increasing percentage of that population are totally non-disabled, the blue area, up from 74% in 1982 to 80% in 1999, whereas a falling share 
are either in institutions, sufficiently frail that they have to be in hospitals or care institutions, a decreasing share are subject to impaired mobility and ability to uh, look after themselves, and a decreasing proportion are subject to categories of impaired uh, mobility. To a significant extent, I think it's clear that aging is healthy, and I think it is at least possible, at least possible, that it is entirely healthy. By entirely healthy, that would mean that the percentage of adult life spent in need of intensive care or somewhat less intensive care does not increase at all with life expectancy. But as it were, the percentage of your life beyond 18 where you need to be intensively cared for, if that is X, it is X independent as to whether life expectancy is 50 years or 100 years beyond the age of 18. The French academic Patrice Bordelais, indeed, has suggested that we need to recognize the extreme elasticity, as he calls it, of the aging process, and to use a concept of equivalent age. By his calculations, an average woman of 77 today is, in terms of health and fitness, equivalent to the average woman of 62 in 1900, that we are really seeing a dramatic form of healthy aging. If that is right, then there are no constraints to a rise in pensionable ages, though we should still do it on that proportional rule. And moreover, aging itself, increased longevity without a fall in the birth rate, would also pose no more problems for health or old age residential care <coughs> than it does in pension systems, provided pensionable ages are increased. But, of course, beyond the issue of whether it's possible for people to retire later, some commentators have expressed wider concerns that a workforce which on average is older, whether that's due to greater longevity or due to a lower birth rate and therefore a greater weight of older people, will inevitably be less productive and that a society which is on average older will be less entrepreneurial, less innovative, less creative. But the same logic of healthy aging, which suggests that people will be able to do some sort of job beyond current retirement ages also suggests that these arguments are at very least hugely overstated. On productivity, changes in the structure of jobs, in occupational structure, have shifted quite dramatically the relative importance of manual strength versus accumulated experience and accumulated knowledge. And research which is quoted in Alistair Murray's excellent new pamphlet, The Centre Forum, from boom to bust, which came out last week, casts doubt upon whether productivity does decline significantly beyond, say, 50, and illustrates that even if it did decline significantly beyond, say, 50 or 55, the total macro effect of the increasing proportion of people uh, in those age groups, uh, the total macro effect on the economy is really quite small. As for innovation and creativity, there is a challenge that, the, that it is possible that the idea that innovation requires you to be young in years may be wrong in two respects. First, because it ignores Bordelais' concept of equivalent age, which may, may apply as much between the years of, as it were, 60 and 45 as it does between the years of 77 and 62. Second, because it may over-exaggerate the importance of risk-taking and youth uh, in innovation for its own sake and underrate the importance of accumulated understanding and insight. 
As Alistair Murray points out, rapidly aging Japan and Germany continue to have very high rates of patent registration per head of population, which is one standard measure of innovation capacity. And I have to say, I have always been a bit bewildered by the example which my good friend David Willits uses to illustrate the less innovative and less creative argument. Because what he says is that an older society will produce fewer Picassos. Picasso, who was still innovating well into his 1980s, uh, into his 80s, and whose innovation was not based on, as it were, youthful flashes of insight, unrooted in experience uh, and knowledge, but on years and decades of steadily built technique. First, as he himself said, learning to draw like Raphael, but then spending a whole lifetime uh, to learn to draw with the childlike simplicity, as he called it, of his final years. My own suspicion, which I hope is not entirely driven by the fact that I quite recently turned 50, and therefore am naturally drawn to the idea that 50 is the new 30, my own suspicion is that the idea that an older society is less innovative and less creative and more conventional is in itself an example of conventional, uncreative and uninnovative thinking. Now, so my strong hypothesis is that aging itself, increased longevity, the life expectancy side of this, is far less of a problem than is sometimes suggested, and that specifically within pension systems, that pensionable ages and retirement ages can and should rise. And indeed, in the UK and increasingly across Europe, uh, they are. This is what's happening to the employment rate of men and women aged 50 uh, to um, state pension age, uh, which having <coughs> fallen for many years in the case of men, is now on a significant upward path. Another way of looking at the same sort of facts is to look at people uh, beyond state pension age, uh, 65 to 75, how many people are employed age 65, age 66, age 67, age 68, and you can see that across those sort of bands, uh, between However, what I will accept entirely, and I think is very important, uh, is that this change, which I think is essential from a macro point of view, but also I think essential uh, for individuals, there may be barriers to it. There may be cultural barriers. People may be assuming that there are productivity barriers when there are not. Uh, there may be simply people who uh, get rid of older workers because it's the easier way uh, to downsize. And I do think that we need to drive uh, these development forwards not only with cultural change, uh, but also uh, by pulling some of the uh, policy levers uh, which are available. So in the spirit of life beyond Blair uh, policy proposals, I'd just like to throw uh, into the mix two specific policy proposals which I think uh, should be uh, looked at. One of which is uh, to increase the bite of age discrimination legislation uh, at the moment, we have new age discrimination legislation from October last year. You cannot fire people uh, on the basis of age, except when they're 65. We still have a backstop uh, at 65. Um, little interesting debate about how we ended up with uh, 65. There was an extraordinary uh, debate between three points of view which went on. Uh, the CBI insisted in lobbying to government that there must be a backstop age. They said, we can't work without a backstop age. It would just be really 
uh, painful if we've got a lovely 80-year-old who just doesn't want to retire, and we don't, have to, we don't want to have to tell them that they're unproductive. We want to have an age beyond which we can retire them. The Trade Union Congress said, um, well, we don't think there should be a backstop age at all, but if there's going to be a backstop age at the time, they say it has to be 65, because if we set a backstop age higher than 65, we will be accepting that the state pension age should go higher than 65. And between those two arguments, we ended up with a backstop age of 65. So very straightforward uh, proposal. I think the backstop age in age discrimination should be the state pension age plus five years, uh, whatever is the state pension age. That is my proposal on that. I think it's also quite important that we create incentives for employers to create more and more jobs uh, for older people. Very specific idea. Um, above SPA, you do not pay employees national insurance. At 65, your marginal tax rate falls beautifully from uh, 33% to 22%, but the employer continues to pay NI. There's absolutely no reason why beyond a certain age we could not have a reduced rate of employer's NI limited over a band of income uh, like up to the upper earnings limit in order to prevent this being a large deadweight cost uh, in relation to uh, elderly chairmen of major public companies. But there are ways of limiting the cost to the Treasury. So those are specific proposals as to how to drive it forward. We should increase pension ages. We are going to. We need to support it with other policies to help create uh, more and more jobs. But it isn't sufficient. And it isn't sufficient to deal with the challenges of pensions because there, are, there is also the fertility rate uh, at work. I said earlier, if the only demographic effect at work were increasing longevity, then increasing the pension age proportionately would be a sufficient response to a pay-as-you-go system. You wouldn't need to change anything else. A, a pension report could be uh, nice and simple, increase the pension age uh, proportionately with life expectancy. The point is that because we have had a fall in the birth rate, that is not sufficient to stabilize the system. And that can be illustrated uh, by this chart. Uh, in Britain today, we spend about 6.25% of national income on the state pension. We illustrated that if we did nothing and if we maintain state pensions rising in line with earnings, which is what we wanted to do to keep it stable uh, relative uh, to uh, average earnings, the cost of state, but left the state pension age at 65, the cost to society would go up to 8.5%. By putting in place the proportional rule, that 8.5% comes down to 7.75%. What that essentially means is that the proportional rule gets rid of a third of the public finance challenge in our pay-as-you-go system. What that illustrates is that within what's demographically occurring to the dependency ratio in the UK over the next 50 years, one-third is coming from increased longevity and two-thirds is coming from the rest, which is the smaller fertility effect. So the issue is, what do you do about the fertility effect? Because you're now down with three possibilities. Either you've got to increase the state pension age more than proportionally uh, with the rise in uh, life expectancy, or you're back to the two ones you didn't want to do before, uh, which is either a higher rate of contribution or tax, 
or making the state pension meaner relative to average earnings. And you've got to face that choice. What essentially we said in the Pension Commission was that we should accept a slightly higher rate of taxes and contributions, that as it were, the amount that we paid as a society to have at least a halfway decent state pension should go up from 6.25% to 7.75%. Now clearly that is a cost of lower fertility. That is clearly the cost of lower fertility in the state pension system. But I think it's very important to place it in context. And the context has three elements. First of all, 6.25 to 7.75 doesn't sound you know, fatally destructive of the affordability of a state pension system. So it's just a manageable amount. Secondly, the adverse effects of a lower fertility rate are offset by three categories of positive effects. First, you have to think about total dependency ratios, not just old age dependency ratios. You've got to work out how many young people are, children are, dependent on the working population, as well as how many people beyond retirement are dependent on it. And if you actually do that, you find that as the birth rate has come down, the youth dependency ratio has come down, while the old age dependency ratio has gone up. And indeed, if you look at the overall total dependency ratio, people not working over people of working age, uh, although it's gone up somewhat, uh, it is no longer uh, dramatic. That's offset one in terms of benefits of lower fertility. The second effect is a crucial effect, and I think it's one that's not been adequately explored by economists, and it's due to do with offsetting effects relating to reduced requirements to accumulate capital. When you have a lower growing population, you don't need to accumulate so much capital for the future because there won't be as many people in the future. The easiest way to think about this is housing. And the way to think about this offset is very straightforward. If average family size is two, not four, clearly the burden of paying taxes to support the elderly population will be bigger, will have to have a slightly higher tax rate. But it will also be the case that if average family size is two, each person on average will inherit half of one house, rather one quarter of one house. It's as simple as that. And when you think that through, that means that at both the macro's perspective and at the individual perspective, there are offsets. If you have a lower birth rate, you need a higher tax stroke contribution rate to support a pay-as-you-go system. But there is in society a smaller need for investment in new housing stock. As it were, the equilibrium required for the progress of society's standard of living requires less investment, and that means you can have a bit more consumption, including consumption on taxes to pay for pensions. Or in terms of occupational mix, it means you need a smaller construction sector, but then you can have a larger health sector. That's from the macro point of view. From the individual point of view, you've got to pay a higher tax rate contribution rate to support as a pay-as-you-go system, but the inheritance of a greater share of housing either reduces the need for you to purchase a house because you will inherit it, or it delivers assets available for consumption in retirement. This is quite a major offset which has not received uh, sufficient attention uh, in the literature. And it was the importance of the greater role of inheritance of housing 
which was one of the reasons why the Pension Commission quite overtly said that once you have greater inheritance of housing, you don't need as high a target replacement rate through your cash pension system. Now, we didn't go to the other extreme and said, because of inheritance of housing, you know, game over, we don't need a good pay-as-you-go pension scheme, because there are, prob there are distributional problems to do with the fact that the people who have the poor pensions don't necessarily have the good housing assets. But on average and overall, the more that you have inheritance of houses and the lower the birth rate, the lower you will require the replacement rate of the pension pay-as-you-go system or the funding system to be. Let me turn very quickly now, and I'll try and wrap up quickly, to say some words about health expenditure. I've talked a little bit about pensions. I've talked about those wider concerns about productivity, innovation, etc. What about health expenditure? What is true is that health expenditure as a percent of GDP is going up throughout the rich developed world. You can see the figures there. France, 7% to 10.4. UK, 5.6 to 7.8. Uh, this is total health expenditure, whether it's public or private. US, actually the most rapid of the lot, 8.8 uh, to 15.2. And a lot of people faced with that say, here we've got the challenge of an aging society. People are getting older, therefore we've got a whole load extra health expenditure. And there is an aging effect in there. But I think it's really important to identify how much and to correctly understand what is likely to happen and why it's happening in order to design the correct response. Because actually there's quite a lot of evidence that the aging element of this phenomenon is relatively small relative to the two real driving factors of healthcare expenditure, which are technological possibility and consumer demand. Essentially, each year, each decade, we are able to do much more things uh, in healthcare than we previously had, and healthcare is high income elasticity category of demand. As people get richer, they want to spend a higher proportion of their income on healthcare. And that is independent of how you organize the system. If you organize the system in the US fashion with private insurance, they will, in a set of private ways, choose to spend more on healthcare. If you organize it publicly funded, they will lobby for the government to spend more on healthcare. But the fundamental thing which is going on underneath that is a high income elasticity good. And as best we know, it's going to go on up and up and up. There is, frankly, a limit to how many washing machines most people want to own. Um, in my case, it's sort of one. Um, but there appears to be no limit to how much healthcare we want. And there are quite a lot of indicators to suggest that the really driving factors are uh, the, the non-aging elements. Let me give you three very quick indicators of that. This is over the period of the 1990s the number of ordinary uh, and day case elective admissions uh, to UK hospitals. And you will notice that the number of admissions of, say, 75 to 84 year olds has gone up. You might think that that is an aging phenomenon until you notice how far it's gone up among 45 to 64 year olds. The really big expansion is not a whole lot of older people, it's just that we are able to do all sorts of new things with healthcare that we weren't able to do. Or to take another look at it, over that same decade, 
The number of people who were aged 75 to 84 went up by 2.8%. The number of people who were aged 85 plus went up by 30.1%. And the number of elective admissions in that age group went up by 109 and 167%. Emergency admissions went up by this. And the number of coronary artery bypass graphs went up by somewhat over 500%. So the increase in the number of people of those age groups was really quite a trivial effect compared with the fact that we simply had the technology to make uh, interventions possible and we chose to devote the money to it. And indeed some work uh, that a team which I was running for the Forward Strategy Unit, uh, the Prime Minister's Forward Strategy Unit five years ago did, building on the work which Derek Wallace was we tried to break down of the proposed increase in expenditure in the Wanless Review from 2002 through to 2012, how much was due to the cost of implementing the national strategy frameworks for particular disease categories? How much was getting other disease areas up to that same level? How much was reducing waiting times and clinical governance? Clinical governance is a technical phrase for no longer killing people by giving them the wrong medicine. Um, and, and how much was the demographic effects? And it turned out that when you did the figures, the demographic effects were very small indeed. So the point here is that although our health expenditures will go up with uh, aging to a degree, um, the vast majority of what is going on in health expenditure uh, is probably not aging. And that reflects, first of all, going back to the pure aging effect. Remember I called pure aging effect increased longevity. It's not clear that increased longevity itself increases health expenditure. There's a famous argument that points out, that well, there's a famous piece of evidence that points out that, I can't, can't forget what it is, but it's something like 60% of the average person's health care cost is in the last 18 months of their life. But the point is that if people live 10 years longer, the point at which that 18 months occurs is simply 10 years younger, 10 years later. It doesn't actually increase. As best we know, that 18 months doesn't become three years uh, when you get older. It's just 18 months at a different point in time. So the pure aging effect may not be driving increased life expectancy, may not be driving health expenditure at all. Of course, as a percent of GDP, the fertility effect will still be at work because there are just more older people because there is a lower birth rate. But those seem to be dwarfed by the technology possibility effect and the uh, high income elasticity effect. But the fact that it isn't driven by aging doesn't mean that it isn't a big challenge. Suppose that it's going to be 20% of national income in 50 years' time spent on healthcare, then 20% of the entire economic challenge of having an efficient economy will be about managing healthcare, because it will be 20% of the uh, economy, and therefore 20% of all the talk that we ever do about productivity rates should at that stage uh, be about healthcare productivity. So healthcare productivity, how we manage this rapidly uh, increasing element uh, of our economy is clearly a very important uh, factor. Let me just say a few final words uh, about how we might think about those uh, issues. I think the crucial thing here, 
As on pensions, where the crucial thing is to avoid false paths, like funded is the answer, if only I could be funded, not pay as you go, everything would be fine. The key thing on healthcare is also to avoid easy false answers, like if only we applied the market, everything uh, would be solved. If by applying the market you solved all healthcare problems, uh, America would not be spending 16% of its GDP on health. In fact, what is really quite striking about healthcare, I think, is that nobody has it right. I know that there are any silver bullet answers at the sort of meta or macro level of system A versus system B. Because I think what is really interesting about healthcare when you get down to how you have to improve efficiency is that you have to get detailed, you have to get uh, nitty gritty, you have to start talking about how you do evidence-based medicine that actually makes sure that uh, we are observing uh, what works and using the medicines that work. We have to do skill mix changes, changing what is done by doctors versus nurses. We have to redesign processes, we have to reconfigure uh, the way that we do hospitals, we have to uh, apply information technology. If I had one out of all of that to do, it would be somewhere between reconfiguration and process redesign. Having spent a year looking at the management of the health service for the Prime Minister's uh, forward strategy unit, the single most striking thing that I learned was that you don't want to go to hospital because there's a lot of ill people there. They're very dangerous places at which you catch diseases. Um, and that may sound very trite, but it's actually rather important because out of that comes, along with some other insights, that we do far too much of our medicine, both in Europe and in America, in high-technology hospitals. And we don't do nearly enough in primary care and getting things right first time. And yet what's extraordinary is how difficult it is to go from A to B. But it's interesting that there was a study done while I was doing my work for um, uh, the Prime Minister comparing the NHS with one bit of the US healthcare system, which is Kaiser Permanente uh, in uh, California. And one of the things which was striking was that Kaiser Permanente does far, far more healthcare at primary care level, with a more technology advanced, more specialist, different model of what happens at primary care, not a single operator GP uh, with not much more capital equipment than a weighing machine, uh, but a really professional primary care, and as a result, sends far fewer people uh, to hospital. And there was quite a lot of analysis which was done at the time. There's an a, a interesting article, I can't remember whether it was The Lancet or, or the British Medical Journal, I think it was, which um, argued that here was the model of somebody doing it fundamentally more efficiently uh, than in the UK. What is interesting about Kaiser is that it isn't doing what we're doing. We're trying to introduce efficiency into <coughs> our healthcare system by creating complicated contracting relationships between the primary care level and the secondary care level. But the one example that we can find of people who appear to be doing it radically differently and radically better are people who don't do internal market contracting between the primary care level and the secondary care level, but who manage the primary and secondary care 
as an integrated management unit where the decisions about what is done at primary and secondary are top-down management decisions rather than market contract-driven decisions, albeit that crucially perhaps they do face external competition uh, to the whole system considered as a totality. So the thought that I simply want to throw out is that um, on healthcare we may need some really radical thinking about what drives uh, efficiency and I'm not absolutely convinced that the route that we are down at the moment is going to get us there. The final point I want to make is that if healthcare is going to go up and up for reasons which are not driven by aging but are driven by technological possibility and essentially high income elasticity, we, are, we may at some stage have to think about how we pay for it rather than necessarily uh, pay it for it entirely by pay-as-you-go funded tax finance free at the point of provision. And again, just as a provocation, I throw out an interesting observation that in the two areas of public policy at least somewhat related to ageing, uh, which I have dealt with for the government, the government has a totally divergent approach. In state pensions, there was an enormous debate, and some people may have noticed, between the Pension Commission and the Treasury about the affordability of increasing state pension expenditure from 6.5 to 7.75% of GDP over a period of 43 years. Simultaneously with that debate occurring, healthcare expenditure was increased from 6 to 8.2% of GDP over a five-year period with almost no debate uh, whatsoever. Indeed, it largely followed the fact that the Prime Minister said something on the Frost programme and got the government committed to that. But even more, there is an underlying difference in philosophy. In state pensions, the government appears to be very wary of universalism as being unacceptably costly and says we've got to focus our expenditure by means testing it. We shouldn't give the same state pension to a richer person than a poorer uh, person. We must focus our expenditure. Turn around to health and universalism free at the point of provision is the guiding absolute and non-challengeable principle of UK healthcare. I simply suggested for a debate that that may be something which we may at some stage have to think about, just as we also have to think about whether our approaches to driving healthcare efficiency are necessarily the right ones. So, what have I said? Aging, you need to be clear about what we mean by it. If we mean increased longevity, increased life expectancy, it's not a problem. It's only a problem if we make it a problem. It's not a problem in pensions, it's not a problem in healthcare. The idea that older societies are less productive, less creative, less as innovative, is at very least unproven and arguably wrong. There are the fertility effects on dependency ratios, which will tend to increase uh, pension expenditure as a percent of GDP, but at UK levels of fertility, I provide you fertility is 1.8, not say 1.2 or 1.1. Those are manageable effects, particularly when you realize the beneficial offsets on the youth dependency ratio, on the capital inheritance effect on housing, and also on things to do with congestion effects, 
uh, lack of pressure on population growth, etc., which I didn't talk about. Health is primarily a story about technological possibility and income elasticity, and only to a small extent about aging, but it's still a huge challenge because the income elasticity may drive it up and up and up, and in response to that challenge, we may need to find new ways of driving efficiency, and we may need at some stage to challenge our universalism decree at the point of provision. If the fertility rate in the UK were lower than our 1.8, I might have been much more pessimistic. If it were, as it is in Japan, 1.1, I think these problems become much more severe. But in the UK, I don't think they are severe. Indeed, the final point that I will leave you with, if you take our fertility rate plus our immigration rate and express them as a combined population replacement rate, we're actually well above two still, which is why the population of Britain is actually expected to increase over the next 50 years from about 60 million to 70 million. And I think the biggest demographic challenge facing Britain in life after Blair is not how to deal with the aging population, but some of the stresses and strains that are going to result from a growing population. Thank you very much. very much indeed, um, as usual, for giving uh, tremendous value for money, um, particularly as presumably um, the amount of money from the LSE <laughs> was rather limited. Um, uh, we have got some time. Um, some of you, I know, may have to leave um, at quarter two, but um, I think if um, uh, there are points being made, um, I will bring this to a close by eight o'clock um, at the latest, but um, let's see how things go. Should we take um, several points together if there are several points, or one by one? I don't know. Yeah, well, well, why don't we do three at a time? Three at a time, yeah. 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 Over there.
Right. There's some of them that I think I can put together. The thing about the public sector, the thing about the inequalities of pensions, and then the, uh, Patrick's point at the end about inequalities. Um, there are huge inequalities in uh, pension provision. And within the pension report, we illustrated you know, those dimensions. The public sector is better off than the private sector. Public sector is about 17 or 18 percent of the workforce, and it owns uh, pension rights, which are implicit pension rights, which are worth about 30 to 35 to 40 percent of all the pension rights in the UK. So the public sector, on average, is twice as better off uh, as the private sector. Within the private sector, there are big differences between people working for the same company, according to whether they are in a still open to old members DB scheme or, and a uh, DC scheme. And then there are uh, big uh, dichotomies between people who are in pension schemes and those who are in no pension scheme at all. And I think it was because of that, the first point I'd like to say is that in the Pension Commission, we focused very heavily on those people who were at the bottom of the pile in that. And that's why we wanted both a more uh, generous, slightly more generous though at a later age, state pension. <laughs> it's also why we proposed the element of compulsion on employers, only a small element, to make sure that provided the individual wanted to accept opting, the, 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 did not take the opt-out from the National Pension Savings Scheme, they would get an element of support from the employer. And it's very interesting, this debate about uh, inequality, uh, inequalities and priorities. One of the arguments that we've had against having that 3% compulsion on employers, we 
we've had people saying to us, well, if you compel employers to put 3% in for all workers, they might be tempted to put in less for those people who are already doing better. This is what's been called the leveling down argument, that the national pension savings scheme with the element of compulsion on employees might produce leveling down. And let me be clear, our argument is quite straightforward to that. We think the, uh, the leveling down argument may be overstated, but if it is true, our proposal is still the correct one because you've got to decide what the priority is. And the priority outside the state pension system is the fact that there are 56% of British private sector workers who are in no pension scheme other than the state pension at all. And that 56% is up from 44% 10 years ago. And it has to be that 56% who've got nothing, which is a higher priority than dangers of leveling down from the subset of the, the other 44% who have a better uh, provision. So that clearly guided our point of view that within these very, very major uh, inequalities, we have to focus uh, uh, on the people who, uh, who have least. On the public sector, I do not consider that the public sector pension reform of two years ago can be the end of the story. First of all, I do think, again, I did that little chart which said that uh, while we were arguing about 6.25 to 7.75% of GDP on state pensions, what this tax mean to health, well, simultaneously, as we were arguing with the Chancellor about whether we could have another 1.5% of GDP for all citizens in this country, a reform of, reform, or very slight reform of public sector pensions went through, which will still leave public sector unfunded pensions going from 1.5% to 2.5% of GDP over the same period. So it's very difficult, apparently, to find 1.5% of GDP for all citizens, but there's 1% of GDP which is going to go to the small subset who are public sector unfunded pensions, you know, just without debate. I think that that is not reasonable. I don't think it will survive. I also think that the way that the government has chosen to do public sector reform will not survive as well. What it has done, and it defends it by saying, well, we've only done what the private sector has done, is to defend insiders at the expense of outsiders. They've basically said that the state pension age for, that the, the public sector pension age, let's take the civil service, national civil service, for people who are already in the system will stay at 60. And will stay at 60 for those people all the way through to their retirement. I mean, just think how extreme this is. If there was a woman graduate aged 22 who just got in before the door was closed and she stays with the civil service throughout her life, the proposition is that she's going to work for the civil service for 38 years and on the best forecast, she'll then have a pension for about 35. I mean, this is a really rather odd proposition. But it's also odd in this respect. Because they've, for new entrants, said that the pension age does go up to 65, it means that essentially they are paying a very different rate of total remuneration to people who join later and join now. But also to people who leave and come back versus people who stay. And I don't think this is going to survive legal challenge. I think in about 15 years' time, this will be legally challenged, most likely by a woman 
in her mid-30s who was in the uh, civil service, who left to have children, and who then came back, and will be working alongside a man of the same age, doing the same job, with the same salary, but they will be receiving a pension proposition, which will be worth a significant difference in terms of uh, the value of that. I would anticipate that this will get legally challenged, and if it is not successfully legally challenged, in my opinion, that would be unjust. I think it should be. Now, of course, it is what private industry has done. Private industry has closed schemes to new members uh, while keeping them open to existing members. And I have sat on boards recently dealing <coughs> with the fact that we are now paying workers doing exactly the same job, essentially total remuneration packages which are 10 or 15 percent different. And I don't think that that is sustainable. I think in the private sector, it is tragic that all of these salary-related schemes closed rather than have been reformed. I think if they've been reformed with higher pension ages, with adjustments in uh, the percentage, uh, the, you know, the years moving from 60ths to 80ths, uh, pension ages being taken up, and if that had been done for all the workers in the scheme, that would have been a much more socially better result than what we've done, which is keep it open in its pristine generosity to people who are in already and to close it uh, to those who are not there. Uh, I think the public sector can still get it right. It should get it right. It should reform on that basis rather than on insiders and outsiders basis. And I would also say that unless it does another bit of reform, at some stage in the next 15 years, some or other government will come along and will abolish salary-related schemes in the public sector, as has now occurred in Australia and in California. I don't want that to occur. I think they'd be better reformed. Uh, but if intelligent reform is opposed, uh, then abolition will eventually occur. So that's a set of things on the points about uh, inequality. On the fertility rates and the offsets and the housing, the housing thing is very, very complicated. And I'm well aware that I talked about averages and this cascade of wealth. I do think it's actually an extremely interesting area for, for more research. I don't think it's been adequately researched how all these different uh, effects uh, interrelate. You're absolutely right that higher longevity in itself increases the population, which people live longer, which is why stable population with increased longevity probably relates to a birth rate of 1.85 or 1.9 rather than 2, because you have to have slightly below replacement rate fertility to offset your longevity effect. Um, the other thing to say, of course, is the UK at the moment, we don't have anything like a stable population, as I showed on the final slide, because although we have below replacement rate fertility, we also have immigration. We've got a rapidly growing uh, population uh, in a densely populated country with constraints on housing land. That generates into house price inflation. House price inflation, real house price uh, growth is a, is a windfall gain for those who already own houses or who have uh, access uh, to uh, uh, credit to buy houses. It is a windfall loss uh, to those who do not own houses or will not inherit houses or do not have access to credit. Uh, and it is driving quite major uh, shifts in, in, in relative wealth uh, that you know, I, I think we should be uh, thinking about. I don't think it changes the fact that on average, you know, if we had a, the if we had a higher fertility rate still, 
we would have an even more rapidly growing population and we would have even more rapidly growing house price inflation with uh, even more dramatic uh, winner and loser effects going on uh, as, as part of that. Uh, but I accept entirely uh, that, uh, that there are those complexities. Finally, um, on stem cell research, etc., uh, I don't know whether that will accelerate the trend further or whether those sort of generations of new technology are why it will never cap out. It'll, there'll, there'll just be a new generation of technology. Um, clearly, uh, it's possible, some people argue, that that trend of increasing life expectancy is not going to just continue, it's going to accelerate. It will be crucial in that <coughs> whether those particular technologies generate healthy aging or unhealthy aging, whether they are simply used to extend life or whether they also extend um, healthy life. Uh, I think there's no reason why they shouldn't be doing uh, both, uh, but, but that will be crucial to whether it changes the picture that I'm uh, telling the story of. Uh, as long as it simply accelerates the increase in life expectancy, but a large proportion of that is healthy aging, it doesn't change the, 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 the uh, proposition that aging in itself is not a problem. Let's yeah. try and squeeze in a couple more points. Yeah.
very short points. Okay, well, we have five minutes. Okay, I mean, just to run back in reverse order. Um, clearly, there is a challenge if people are made redundant, say, in their 50s, and find it difficult to reskill, in the sense it's more difficult you know, in the 50s and earlier. It, it can be a problem. I think it is considerably less of a problem than it was 15 or 25 years ago. I think if you look at the reasons why, if you look at on the chart where I showed that the employment rate between 50 and 65 had come down a lot and then for the last 10 years have been going up. Some of the reasons why it came down was that particular period of uh, deindustrialization, deindustrialization of heavy industry, particularly regionally concentrated, people made redundant uh, in their 50s uh, who really had very little uh, ability because of their skill sets, because of the regional uh, employment situation, to re-enter the workforce. And that was a key reason why we got that very long uh, downward trend in employment rates at that level. The reason why I say those are less severe than they used to be, first of all, regional unemployment, it's an interesting phenomenon, is less severe than it used to be. If you look at the gradient of the unemployment rate between big block regions of the country, it's much less dramatic than it was in the 80s. And that's because social deprivation has actually become much more, much more micro. It's these particular wards, it's this particular area of the city, rather than great big regions with uh, whacking great high uh, a, a unemployment rates. And therefore, we don't have as much problems, essentially because the economy has moved on from that sort of deindustrialization phase of whole areas of the country where across the whole of the Northeast there are uh, inadequate amounts of jobs. Clearly, however, there is a challenge of skilling people to, to reskill when you know, their job becomes redundant through occupational change. Um, and, and I think there are, you know, there are important issues of, of, of public policy about the way that we support reskilling and further education at, at older age groups rather than uh, thinking that uh, education is something that you do up to the age of 22 uh, and then stop. So it's not it's not a non-problem, but I think it is, it is actually less of a problem than it was 20 years ago, which is why that trend uh, is going up. Um, on the older people, lack of pensions in, uh, confidence in pensions and insurance, I, I think there were a number of different things that you were combining together there. There's, there's an issue of accessibility to general insurance, non-life insurance, uh, which clearly can be a problem, though I think there are some quite innovative um, ways uh, around that. I mean, I think some of the work of some of the uh, older age charities, Age Concern, etc., in proactively going out and doing deals on uh, 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 insurance policies which do enable people to get, you know, insurance to go on foreign uh, travel, uh, etc., you know, are, are quite innovative. I mean, sadly, my father just died at the age of 88, but he died on a cruise where with a little bit of work, he had managed to get 
uh, travel uh, insurance. Uh, it required a bit of ferreting around, but somebody was still willing to um, uh, uh, insure him uh, aged 88. So I think the general insurance things are, you know, one needs to keep pushing away at it, but I don't think it's, it's, it's a fundamental uh, problem. Um, clearly, uh, there has been a major problem about a collapse of confidence in pensions and the insurance industry, and it goes back to the, uh, the insurance company problems of mis-selling, uh, pension, uh, pension scheme closures, sometimes in an insolvent state, uh, uh, etc. Um, and I think one of the things that we've got to do in a new pension settlement with the National Pension Savings Scheme is create something that people do have confidence in, and we've tried to design it in that fashion. Um, there has been a flight into uh, property. Um, some people are trying to buy multiple houses. I think, provided they've managed to get multiple houses, probably they have looked after themselves for retirement. The bigger issue there, I think, is the distribution issue, that the way that the buy-to-let market is squeezing out the first-time buyer market. As for the incentives to work, I would say that actually I do think beyond 65, the incentives to work are not bad because with the basic rate of income tax coming down from 22 to 20, um, with no employees' national insurance and with higher start points of the, uh, the tax thresholds, if you look at the marginal rate until you're earning you know, in retirement above 35, probably 40,000 a year before you get into the 40% band, you're, you're paying... 0% on your first seven or 8,000 and then 20% on the next 33. I mean, in terms of incentives to work, there's a lot of bigger problems uh, uh, within uh, the tax and benefit system uh, than at that uh, level. And I, I do think the fact that you don't have to pay uh, employees national insurance actually you know, does significantly increase the incentives to work. And that's why I, my focus would not be I, I don't think it would be right to start producing a special low rate of income tax, even below 20% uh, at the margin for older people. I, I would focus more on whether the things we can do on the employer's national insurance to uh, create incentives to uh, uh, make more jobs. Finally, on issues of fertility rate at 1.8, families, etc. This raises a very interesting issue about, as it were, quality of child rearing as well as quantity on which, for instance, Heather Joshi uh, has, has written, uh, and I've heard her talking the other day uh, about this. Um, some of these issues about wider family units, but also housing, get to the interesting debates about why is the fertility rate precisely the, where it is. Um, you know, the, uh, the, there's quite a lot of evidence that if you ask women at the start of childbearing age how many children they want to have, you get a slightly higher, not dramatically higher, but slightly higher result than actually occurs. You know, so if the actual result is 1.8, the stated desire is 2 or 2.1. And a lot of the reasons why that doesn't occur, uh, apart from the obvious thing of just not meeting the partner who, who, who fixes, but a lot of it is things to do with the cost of housing, uh, the cost of uh, 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 childcare, uh, and other issues like that. So that... Like, relates a little bit to you know, why the fertility rate is what it is. But I'm sure also there are vital things, but they are an entire extra area of social policy about the, the quality of child uh, rearing 
which are immensely important, but I think I will have to leave alone this evening. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, we have indeed run out of time. Um, you've left us with um, a huge number of um, different ideas there, um, one of which is clearly that um, this life after Blair will be a long and healthy life after Blair. There is one slight caveat of that, which is an implication of everything Adair has been saying, is that it may dawn on the current incumbent that a ten-year term is the new eight-year term, <laughs> uh, which might lead to a revision of, plan, of his plans. Um, but um, apart from that, thank you very much indeed to all of you for coming, but thank you in particular to Adair for such a stimulating evening. Thank you.